Welcome to Top Tube. It's all about fun on the bike and some chat about the people that ride one for a living as well. I am joined by the best voice in podcasting and the gingerest beard, the Icarumba to my Sacalobra, Mr. Graham Wilgos. Hello. And I'm also joined, as I will be every week, by the weatherman, the professor of the pod, the Morticia Adams to my Mortarolo, Stephen Bowie. Why am I called the weatherman? <laughs> we'll get to that at some other point. We'll come to it. Yeah. Then. Disagree. <laughs> Don't fret. <laughs> All will be revealed. Stephen says hello. And Salut I'm, and chapeau. <laughs> and I am David Quainton. We will, in a minute, talk about the opening thrusts of the professional season. Um, but before that, just how are we? Are we excited? It's the first podcast. I'm very, excited. Very excited, as, as, well, as well we might be. Steve? Yeah. Steve's always excited. I am always excited. And I'm triply excited, in fact, for this, because I think this is going to be great. And we hope to entertain and inform. And well, there we go. Miss <laughs> around. And how we do that? Yeah. Yeah, we're going to do all of those. How things. are we going to do that? We're yeah. going to be. We're going to know about cycling. We're going to. We're going to talk about issues that other people may not talk about and stay on the side of uh, the libel laws. We're going to try and stay on our bikes. Yeah. Try and stay on our metaphorical bikes. Talking of staying on our bikes, have, what have you been up to this week? Have you been on your bike, Stevie B? I have not. I am still preparing for a very busy and uh, ambitious, um, which we'll come to, uh, year of cycling by conversely doing a lot of running. How's that working out for you? Um, it's winter and turns out it's cold out and I live in the countryside out in Hertfordshire and it turns out that as opposed to running in London um, it's really dark and uh, when someone comes along you're instead of finding them interesting you're just worried that they're going to steal your purse so aside from running around being scared with, your, pur- with your purse <laughs> <laughs> do you run with your purse with all the time? Purse, yeah. got any plans for the next week? Uh, I do, I do. I'm going to go and see Simon Gerrans tomorrow evening. Are you? Yeah. yeah a bit of, bit of time with, for with Simon Gerrans. Well. Close well, personal friend? Yeah, well, not a close personal friend. He's launching a new helmet. And <laughs> the Hexo helmet. So uh, to, to the, the, the USP of the Hexo is you have your head scanned first. And they uh, they shape the helmets to your exact measurements. Going in with an open mind right, as, yeah. as to the as to the brand. Um, so he's he's no longer, as we know, he's no longer a professional cyclist. He's so, no longer so part of the pro peloton. Last season, retired at the end of last season. Yeah, yeah from BMC. So um, he hasn't wasted any time. He clearly had plans before he retired. Well, do you know what he's doing now? So he's other than partnering so, with cyclemen. Other, other, yeah. So I th- that's that's a sort of byproduct of his cycling career. But his main focus now is he's taken up an internship with Goldman Sachs. Is he? It's a Goldman Sachs sporting internship. Um, so Which they, is they a offer. Sporting well, anyone who has devoted their early life and their the early part of their adulthood and so their twenties, um, and for Simon Gerrans most of his 30s at this point, mm. um, is invited to, uh, to apply. And, and Geron's having had a, a distinguished sporting career um, and a distinguished cycling career, for that matter, um, has, has taken up a place at Goldman Sachs. They've, they've obviously welcomed him with open arms because it, I, I think you'd do well to better his sporting pedigree uh, amongst the, um, the high standard of applicants that they, they obviously go for. Uh, and he said he's riding around Richmond Park these days, which yeah, is very he's... different to riding up. Uh, Gerrans is living in London, is he? Yeah, well, he's West London-based is the um, is the word. Mm. So Richmond Park's his um, 
do you think he's still his you know, track of choice currently he's still he's kept himself fit because obviously no one rides around Richmond Park for anyone who knows Richmond Park or West London London generally it's quite competitive I'm sure Simon Gerrans being a very competitive man has probably kept himself fit to absolutely crush anyone I'm sure, I'm sure he doesn't I mean this is a guy that's won a stage in every Grand Tour and two monuments hasn't yes. he and, <laughs> and worn the yellow jersey yeah. I wonder if he's challenged uh, David Miller's unofficial or official record actually of, of the fastest lap around Richmond Park. maybe you can ask him tomorrow mm. oh, it's you? top of my list perfect mm. okay let's talk about what professional cyclists have actually been up to so far briefly um, obviously we've had a few races this season um, running from the top just picking out a few of the most uh, I guess interesting ones I saw that in the uh, Colombian Nationals Danny Martinez kind of the lesser thought of of the young Colombians coming through but 1 minute 30 into Bernal in the TT is now national champion which is notable um, related to that hot off the press we've got the Colombia 2.1 race going now do you know who won the team time trial have a guess well I do know who won it but uh, for the benefit of, of everyone else no David do tell <laughs> I, I don't have I, I don't have the, the first clip. so uh, EF Education First surprisingly won it I mean they've got Uran Martinez who obviously can TT it seems and wait hold uh, the news EF Education First won a race well apparently they've sorted out their time they now have bikes that they can time try which is interesting because you're alluding to the fact that their Cannondale slice time trial bikes were considered not and quite as well developed as some others in the peloton I don't know if no it's development it just didn't work for people did it Every, mm. that people were like Uran were noticeably slow certainly quite an ugly bike yeah so uh, I don't know what they're riding now it's probably we should probably look that up but nevertheless they put time into De Koenig who was second um, with Bob Jungles uh in the lineup, Sky, who were third, with how far through, behind? Uh, they were eight seconds back. Sky were another handful of seconds back, but they had Castro Viejo, Bernal, and Freeman there. Over what distance? Um, and uh, it was short. I don't. I, right. I don't know. Once again, raising for me the question of what is the point of the team time trial? <laughs> um, it kind of raises a bigger point, uh, which is: um, can we read anything into these early races in general? Um, so we've got another bunch of results. So uh, we have uh, San Juan. Um, Tour of Valencia. The Tour of uh, Valencia. With, we saw at the Tour of Valencia, Yates outclimb Valverde um, on the last major climb. And one that Valverde, I think, has won for the last three years. Um, I can we read anything into that? Are well, these... I, I, I mean, the only thing I took from that was that Valverde looks noticeably rubbish in his world champions kit compared to Sagan last year. It doesn't even look like he's been measured for it. To be honest, he looks like a fat old man in in a in a replica top. So aesthetics is basically the main thing we can take yeah. at the start of the season. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Um, uh, Grunewagen won a sprint there. Um, who's going to be quicker this year? Him Dylan, or Viviani? Dylan Greenpath. Yeah. Uh, Viviani still for me because he's got the better train. Right. And what about bike? What about bike? No, it's a bad joke, if I'm honest. Uh, in we'll San, edit that yeah, out. We'll edit that out. <laughs> um, leave them. Yeah, leave it all in. Warts <laughs> and all. Uh, Mark Cavendish uh, came back in Tour of San Juan, looked okay in the first sprint and then faded quite badly. Is uh, Again, should we read anything into that? Or should we just write everything? No. Um, no, these early season things are interesting for the sake of looking at who's riding for who, who's looking good. Um, Does that tell you a little bit about appetite with Cav? You got the appetite for the sprint, so came back, 
first race, San Juan, up there in the first sprint, because he, he kind of wants to make a point. What, which or race, Graham? San Juan. San Juan. San Juan. You want to pick me up on my pronunciation, or do you want to talk about cycling? <laughs> I'd be a little... Cavendish is someone who actually, when you look at it, given that his last two years have been so disrupted, both by injury and illness... Uh, he hasn't actually had many races back-to-back, so the fact that he's actually doing these races and completing them is probably more important for him in his road. Yeah, that's what I was coming to. I think it's unfair to, to judge him currently. Indeed. Uh, we also saw uh, Remco Evenepoel racing his first professional uh, race at the age of 18, turning 19 at the time, actually, and looked strong. Right. Do we think that everyone out there knows who Remco Evenepoel is? They if may they not. don't, they're certainly going to. Tell me about him. Well, he's an absolute scary, scary phenomenon. Easy for you to say. What comes around, what goes around, comes around. Okay. Comes very quickly. Let, let's summarise what we know about Remco Venepo. He's just turned 19, just signed by De Kernick, who picked him up because someone else would have. He's completely foregone the under-23 stage of his career. He won something like 20 out of 25 races or so. That's not actually correct, but something like that uh, in his junior level. It's probably pretty close. Yeah, I mean, an astonishing talent following on from the likes of Sagan and other people historically, you know, Frank Vandenbroek. Um, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll come on to that. Maybe we'll do an episode about that uh, in the future. But um, he came to prominence most notably last season in the World Championships where he crashed in the junior race, lost two minutes and rode back on his own. Uh, to still win the race. Um, even more impressively, he won the European Road Race Championships by nine minutes, what was it, nine minutes, 40-odd seconds or something, Jeez. riding on his own for most, you know, for a lot of that, which is unbelievably impressive. And he th- it was thought that to skip the under-23 stage of his career and go straight into the pros, he'd learn a lot. He's got a lot of development ahead of him, but showed that in the Tour de, de, de San Juan, um, that he was finishing something like 15th in his first ever professional senior stage. Showed that he's already um, right up there. And I think scared, you know, he's very well aware of his own talent and, you know, as probably being schooled to sort of manage expectations. But, you know, shows some sign of his youth by saying, well, I think that, you know, some people here are already scared of me. Um and right, rightly so, because he's a scary, scary talent. And, you know, as someone else pointed out, um, he has four or five years development ahead of him and he'll still do only think, be do, like do 24. So. Gonna, uh, so so what we're saying is that we do think that he's going to realise the talent. It's not going to be like we see in lots of sports. People are really good at, you know, as a, an outstanding youth step up and, and you know... Well, I think talent-wise, it's hard to see how he can't, but obviously it go, it's so much down to personality and the support he's given from people around him um, could go either way but at this stage he's at least as talented as Sagan was at the same age um, not quite the same rider Sagan was a bit more physically developed at that age but um, you know equally took a few years to be winning regularly um, we'll see I mean he, it'll be interesting to see when he wins his first professional race he did very well in the TT that beaten only by Philippe, I believe um, in uh, my uh, research in the results of um, the year to date, I was looking up how Valverde, uh, looking up his career, 
and I couldn't remember when he won a Grand Tour, and it was 2009, the 2009 uh, Vuelta. Guess who came ninth? Was it Lin- Lizzie Dignan's husband? Lizzie Dignan's husband, <laughs> Phil Dignan, came Phil Dignan ninth. in his own right. In his own right, came ninth in the 2009 Vuelta. Um, which, uh, that is how much, ladies and gents, how much we take for granted British or indeed Irish success in, in cycling these days. Because I remember back in, ooh, the, the, when I got into cycling in the mid to late 90s, um, that the only thing we had to cheer about was, was the Linda McCartney team who had one British person in, I think it was Charlie Vigalius at the time. Well, ninth would have been an open-top bus around... Well, it would have been like extraordinary. <laughs> it would have, we wouldn't have known how to handle it. It was the fact that we had a team and at least one person in a tour was something to celebrate. Um, so how much the sport has changed both professionally and indeed the landscape of fitness and cycling and running in this country is something that I will never take for granted because I remember what it's like to have to put on tracksuit bottoms to go cycling to get to the edge of town unless people throw garbage at you um, and now the people who would call you names will say run Forest, run and now the people who are doing it themselves and it's an amazing amazing development in the sport and it's, it's attracted a lot of new people to the sport you know my two colleagues here included who you know have spent a lot of time playing football uh, at a really good level and, and are sort of fall in love with the sport as well so you know we'll, we'll be talking a lot more about that as I think the series goes on because I think that's something that is underappreciated actually just how much the landscape cult and cultural f- fabric has changed in the UK alone um, over the last 20 years and the reasons behind that. Things are, things are changing. Graham, is, uh, any changes you've noticed so far in the professional races uh, to date that you think are worth noting? Any any trends you've spotted? I'll tell you one thing I noticed today. Yep. is uh, the news. You see this about Paris-Roubaix? So the, one of the most famous stretches in Paris-Roubaix, no, the, the, the Arenberg Trench. Mm-hmm. Uh, officially 100 metres shorter than... than than uh, originally thought, oh, really? so because the the way they measure the course yeah. is more accurate apparently this year. I don't know for why. How were they measuring it before? Well, presumably <laughs> spacing it out with a, with yeah, a glass yeah, of red wine. Kind of, I don't know, yeah. <laughs> right, no, particularly yeah. particularly punchy German uh, Belgian beer. Yeah, I'm just taking the word of the farmer. <laughs> yeah. um, so in in announcing this year's route, it's shorter uh, for the the Queen of the Classics. Um, Has it well, been the trench. The trench is five shorter. Star to four it's star. still a five-star trench, mm. or a five-star um, uh, section of parve, I should say. Um, if it was a five-star trench, <laughs> well, that, I would suggest yeah, they would need a six-star rating for that. <laughs> Don't go anywhere near that. Yeah. Um, so, 100 metres shorter than previously thought. The other thing that I wanted to come on to, it's not, not road cycling, but I think still mm. worth a mention, Victoria yeah. Williamson. Um, so, uh, the, the British track cyclist who... Um, broke her back, neck, um, fractured her pelvis, uh, and it effectively degloved her right flank to the extent that you could see her spine on the track at the six days of Rotterdam um, three years ago, has been named in the, uh, the Track Cycling World Championship squad um, wow. amongst... As a well, spectator, among, one assumes. Yeah. No, no. So among some serious companies. So as, as you'd expect, Katie Marchant, Eleanor Barker, uh, Katie Archibald, Laura Kenny, Jason Kenny, for that matter, Philip Hines, John Archibald, 
uh, Ethan Hayter and Ed Clancy all in there. Um, but Victoria Williamson is, is back. But she had to learn to walk again That's after this crash. Um, I mean, and how does an injury like that happen on a track? She had she either she it was didn't... either the the boards of the track or the the barrier. Um, her collision with it was at such an angle. So having become entangled with the rider she was racing, uh, she was she she then hit the the boards or the barrier in such a way that um, it, it was that powerful and and, and going that quickly. Which it goes to show how well, it goes to show how unlucky you can be, yeah. but also how. I mean, the fact that she's back riding a bike is miraculous. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, I mean, so, so the, good luck to her. There was a, there was um, for those people who remember Jason Queeley, who took um, the one kilometer gold at, I believe, the two thousand and two thousand or two thousand and four, two thousand, I think, 2000, Sydney two thousand Olympics, um, in what was then the Blue Ribbon event, but has now subsequently been pruned from the Olympic track program. Um, he a couple of years later had a terrible injury where he crashed. And broke one of the uh, planks in the track, which then splintered and impaled. It was a very large splinter, and it completely impaled his leg. I think there were... We'll find that picture. We'll put it on our um, Instagram page. Which actually talking of the Instagram page, which is uh, at Top Two Podcast for anyone that wants to follow. Let's plug, David. Um, Are uh, we allowed the... to uh, do um, unpaid spon- unpaid endorsements if it's for our own? Own product. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure it's yeah. endorsements, I'll, endorsements I'll check, or disclaimers. I'll, ch- I'll check with our I'll check with our legal team. Um, the Arenberg Trench also features has also featured already on the uh, Instagram page and a picture of Eddie Merckx. One one more on Vicky Williamson on, on pictures and actually it's probably worth putting a, an image of, of yeah, her yeah, up, absolutely um, and and the injury to her back being able to see someone's spine yeah. unbelievable. Um, so she she blogged about her accident and her recovery and her rehabilitation. Well, she does. You can go to go to her blog, vixwilliamson.co.uk. So V-I-C-S Williamson.co.uk. Well, so we'll put a link to be that transparent. Um, on the Instagram page and on our Twitter page as well. I have a question for you, gentlemen. Um, is a one-star trench more or less difficult than a five-star cobbled section? Something for you to think of. I prefer a five-star hotel. Yeah. <laughs> We're staying overnight. Um... Okay, well, that's the end of uh, the professional news. Okay, welcome to part two. We're going to talk a little bit about what we do on the bike. Graham? So, looking forward to uh, the things we may or may not be looking forward to on the bike this season uh, and the three of us are returning to the Marmot the amateur cyclo sportif held in the Alps each July it was our first experience of it um, last year chaps the the 174 kilometer loop um, of a route that starts at the foot of Alpe d'Huez um, finishes at the summit uh, rather cruelly um, <laughs> includes 5,000 meters of climbing in order the the uh, the summits of how do you know it finishes at the summit room? How do I know? Because <laughs> two very kind people came down and picked me up and <laughs> dropped me off at the top. Um, 
No. So I was about to say I was about to go over the this, the, the the summits that the the route takes in, um, three of which I know very well. Um, having done Duez before, actually twice before, I know Duez, but um, but not on race day. Um, unfortunately, I proved that it's is uh, is beyond my or was beyond my means to. Uh, to tackle the marmot without any training um, but they, those 5,000 meters of climbing um, in order the glandon the telegraph the glibier and a finish on the famous hairpins of Alpe d'Huez um, so chaps overriding memories of last year or perhaps overwhelming memories of last year well I could wax lyrical um, I think what I'm going you, to you could, but, you, but you yeah. shaved on the day of the, <laughs> the day of the race well, you've got to shave. Uh, I'm in the company here of two former footballers who haven't yet progressed. I mean, that's an entirely new de- uh, other debate, which I'm sure we'll get into or not. Um, yes, I shaved. I'm a true cyclist. I shave my legs like a man. Um, and I did it on the day of the race with a blunt razor and I bled. And I'm not ashamed of that. And moving on, I think I'm going to seize now on a key point that Graham slipped in there, which is that he tried to do it without any training. Um and entirely ruined that because I I was hoping that he was going to prove um, that it was possible to do this this thing this 174 kilometers 5,000 meters climbing with no training Um, some people have paid lip service to doing this but it's turned out that ultimately they are elite marathon runners (laughs) Um, Graham was properly going to do it from a standpoint of proper overweight um, I mean, I was we, David and I were both surprised that he turned up at the foot of in Bordeson at the race start, heavily pregnant. Uh, there's, there's photographic evidence of this, which we which was available on Twitter. I encourage you to see it. Graham's never it, it's it's a it's a picture that's never going to go away. Well, it's um, a picture that I willingly share quite often. But... <laughs> um, because it, it's it's a source of enormous joy to all three of us, actually. Yes. I think for, lo- for lots of reasons, but it, it does, yeah, the, the sort of shape I turned up in was not the sort of shape that was going to, certainly not going to give me an easy day, um, and, and it certainly was the most difficult day I've ever had on a bike, uh, and, and as you say, I, I finished 11 kilometres short of the finish, um, yes. but those 11 kilometres would have been up the hairpins of Duvez. Yes, no, no small ordeal. Um, as I say, Graham ruined that by doing fifty kilometres of training three days before. He he um, he's only training three days before he took the flight out there, uh, which is a great disappointment to me. Um, however, sacrificed my freshness, didn't he, I? He got, <laughs> yes, one might say he sacrificed his only competitive advantage, his his relative freshness. Um, however, he did do three three coals, uh, which is more. I mean, David and I had had a sock bet on this. I'm ashamed to say <laughs> that I, I didn't have the same faith in my friend that, that David had. Um, I was a bit more realistic. Um, however, I do recount, as David, the, David and I's days in, they intersected at various points in, we, in which we conferred. And I remember the second climb of the day. This is my most overriding memory the second climb of the day, the, the cold you telegraph was agonisingly hot and you suddenly realised how punishing the day was going to be and how far you had to go. Um, and I was thinking to myself as I was just turning over my tiny, tiny gear as best I could with all sorts of hopes for a, for a stunning time out of the window and just trying to creep to the finish, I thought, Jesus, Graham's, gonna, Graham's not going to do it, is he? Um, and then I thought, oh good, I've won my bet then. 
Um, David, your your memories around about that point? Can you can you recall? Oh well, I thought you had no fucking chance in the world of completing it at that stage. To be honest, Fair. because I was uh, to be, up to that point when I saw Stephen, which was actually down the other side of the Telegraph. Um, I wasn't thinking of anyone other than myself because I was having a horrendous time because my legs were starting to cramp. I was really worried I wasn't going to complete it. I'd done training, but it was obviously the wrong form of training. Um, And uh, I still had half the race and two mountains to go over. So when um, I finally bumped into Stephen again and he asked me whether you'd complete it, knowing that I'd left you behind at the very, very foot of the Glandon and how much pain I was going through... I have to say, at that point, my faith in you had um, subsided. My faith in myself has subsided. I, um, I ended up riding up the Telegraph with two charming people, Richard and Karen, um, with whom I stopped at the cafe on top of the Telegraph. Um, there's a lot of talk about getting your nutrition strategy right for an amateur race such as this, and that is one lesson that I will take away too, because... Uh, I bonked as, uh, as as badly as, as ever I can remember on a bike too. Um, and I'm not sure the bowl of chips and the Mars bar that I had on top of the, the <laughs> Telegraph was an appropriate part of anyone's nutrition strategy. Good for the soul, perhaps, um, but uh, certainly did me no further favours given the, the shape and, and by that stage the distress that I was in. I think there's there's a there's a timing mat at the bottom of of outdoors and you've got to hit it by six thirty to get an official time at the top. Um, me and Stephen managed to hit it well within the time limit. And when I got to the top, Stephen was already waiting, and we had a quick discussion about whether Graham would make it. Because neither of us had spoken to him at that point and looked on the map. Uh, had you tracked me before that? Yeah, I tracked you a couple of times. And you were pretty slow, but we're at the top and <laughs> looked at looked at where you were on my phone. And just looked at each other and went, well, no, there's no chance of that. Went back and, ha- and tried to have a shower, obviously. And the shower didn't work in our apartment. And then, uh, then drove the car to pick you up. One of my, you know, dearly cherished hopes at that point was that Graham could be prevailed upon to finish the race, even if it meant um, ascending out to airs in the dark, the only competitor still left on the mountain, uh, like a like a hero of old, and uh, we got down to the bottom, um, and I thought I was going to suggest to David, why don't we just lock the doors and give him give him no option but to keep going? And I thought he's not going to be very happy about it at the time, but I think I was sort of hanging on to the idea that he might thank us later. Fortunately, that was sort of quashed when he turned up with with um, his friend Rich, um, and couldn't realistically um, forbid both of them entry into the car. So. Um, I think, you know, that's one that Graham could have uh, sort of meditated on later as a, as a regret, perhaps. But uh, I mean, I think the heat of the day has subsided at that point. What was your, your thoughts at the time? Well, I was way outside the time limit. So even even if I had done it, I wouldn't have officially finished the race, if you see what I mean. So there was... Although there was a a sort of Cavendish-esque kind of, um, you know, your duty bound to honour the race, I don't think the level of suffering that that would have entailed. um, And, and, you know, I might have got a slightly better story out of it. For me, my marmot was done by that stage. I would, I might have called it even before the Glivier, uh, the the summit of the Glivier, I mean, um, were it not for Rich and Karen, um, both of whom were, were struggling just as much as I was. That's 
for me, one of the loveliest things about the Marmot, one of my particularly fond memories, is the camaraderie that you strike up with complete strangers. You're going through exactly the same thing as they are, suffering, if you're going the same same pace, you're almost certainly suffering just as badly as they are um, by that point, because I don't think anyone chooses to go as slow as I was going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, so Rich and Karen, thank you for getting me to the foot of, of Duez and, and back to Bourg de Son. Um, it was a real pleasure sharing that, that bowl of frit with or, uh, fritz with you um, and, and that bowl of fritz. fritz. <laughs> <laughs> so, Graham, let me ask you the key question here. Given that immediately after, and indeed days after last time when we were sitting around drinking a very nice rose on top of the mountain, very sunny conditions, and you said unequivocally that you weren't going to do it again. Are you going to do it again? <laughs> what, what did I say? That I'm not going to train again? Or that I'm not going to do the race you said again? You absolutely know that's you. I think your words were, no, that's, that's, uh, that's me done, chaps. Your Steve Redgrave no, moment. I've got nothing to... <laughs> <laughs> shoot, you have my permission to shoot me. <laughs> you see me on a bike anywhere near Duez again. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course I'm going to do it again. But it's the same as uh, when you finish, you finish the marathon. You think, Christ, I never want to do that again. And, and, and yet your brain works in a funny way where that thought starts to creep in and that little acorn, acorn um, flourishes into this rather daft thought that you're going to tackle the most difficult day you've ever had on a bike again. And that's not the last we're going to talk about the Marmots. Uh, we'll be back very soon with part three. So it's been pretty miserable weather outside, hasn't it? None of us have managed to get any long. What's the longest oh, ride you've the, done the so far? The nights are fair drawn in. <laughs> well, it's a bit of a shock to me, to be honest, because February is normally tropical at this. But <laughs> I've been running. I've yeah. not been riding. The longest ride I've done is my commute into the office, which is just over nine miles, Wimbledon to St Paul. So that takes you what two, three hours? hours? Yeah. <laughs> what David has uh, hinted there yeah. is fair, the, as well, the yeah, forty minutes of the fair. As as as, uh, as we will get to know, Graham is training averse, or has shown a track record of being cake. Pro cake. Pro cake anti-training. I am pro cake, for the record. <laughs> How's the training's cake ratio at the moment? Uh, in, it won't surprise no one to learn, but the, uh, the ratio is wildly balanced in favour of cake. <laughs> right, okay. Well, it's okay, because we've only got four, just under five months to go. Four. I'm sure it'll be fine. Four Alps in one day, 174 this is, this is five months to go to the Marmot. What lessons have we learned that we're going to do differently this year? Uh, I'm going to do exactly the same thing if my form so Which far... Which is no is training and 150 kilometre ride two days before his flight Which out. arguably hampered me. Um, <laughs> I will definitely change the gearing on my bike. So, just Sorry, just to clarify, you are still going to do no training? Well, I, I, might, I might have a crack at it. Okay. We'll come, we'll come back to that later. The, the point I was getting to was uh, we've... We've commuted in, we've not done a great deal of long rides yet this year, but the rides that we have done have been in pretty miserable weather, and it got me thinking, what is the worst weather you've ridden in? And are, I can start with mine, or would you like to have a little think about it, would you, or would you, off the top of your head, do you know one that is definitely the worst weather you've Are we making a value judgment about weather? Is that uh, what we're doing here? 
now I'm just literally asking you, what's the worst weather you've ridden in? So, yes. Uh, the worst weather I've ridden in, in terms of... Are we talking in terms of lack of enjoyment? <laughs> yeah, but I think that's probably the best way to... Because you can sometimes ride in the pouring rain. It's great, right? Yeah. Well, if, if it's warm you can't enough, get any wetter. Yeah, and then, and then it's fine if it's warm enough. But if it's cold and it's raining, then it's horrible. So the worst weather, technically, might not actually be the wet. What's the weather you've enjoyed the least? That would be when I had hypothermia. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Compelling. Yeah. Continue. So was that before you got on the bike or after? When? No, in fact, um, I didn't start with hypothermia. I started in Nice um, in 40 degrees. And I actually was, I was wearing a helmet, which isn't always the case for me. And I felt that I wasn't... Although I'd never read any stories about it, I wasn't completely sure that you, your head couldn't cook in your own helmet. And I was working out, is that a possibility? Because it felt like it was. So, 40 degree heat, and you've ended up with hypothermia. How, what? How have you ended, how have you gone from nearly baking to nearly dying? What's, what's, the, what's the difference? Is altitude? Well, it's a little thing called weather, David. Uh, in the Alps, um, especially altitude, there's a sudden pressure drop in the evening, which can cause flash downpours, including hail. Right, so where were you, which mountain? Well, I was at the Col de la Bonnet, the, high, the third highest road pass in Europe. Uh, which goes up to, what, 3,000 metres? 2,700 and something metres, if you don't include the Seam de la Bonnet, a dead end, which goes to 2,800. Anyone know which ones are higher? It's the highest mountain pass in Europe, the highest road. The highest is the Col de Zoar, um, also in the Alps. There's one in Spain, which is quite high as well. Uh, if anyone wants to correct us and can provide evidence, then feel free. Um, Even a picture. Provide us with a picture of you on the yes. highest... Um, Interestingly enough, the Col de la Bonnet, despite being this high, is rarely used in the Tour de France and is actually only, only featured a handful of times. So, I'd, I'd, so why, if there was thunderstorms at the top of this mountain, did you ride up it? Oh, because we are very stupid. And this is why exactly why you shouldn't go anywhere unprepared and why you can get into difficulty even in the uh, most benign-seeming circumstances, if you don't think about what you're doing. We did not take a raincoat, which would easily have saved us and saved all these problems. We were told by two people at midday who come down there while we were at a cafe stop that it was balmy at the top. We barreled on up. How long, how long did it take you to get to the point where it started raining? 40 kilometres, so a couple of hours. Yeah, um, so a couple of hours later. And what, it's like suddenly the heavens turned... Black. It was an absolute torrent. The roads in France are very smooth. It created uh, far far better than any British motorway, to be honest. Uh, what I can only describe as like riding up a stream. So so intense that it was moving large rocks into my path. I moved my wheel left to avoid one. Was to, my wheels were taken away by the force of the water. It was basically turned into some kind of version of Mario Kart going uphill, but in the extreme cold and very wet. Yes. Yeah, so... What happened? So when did you find out? So at the top, is there? I've not been up the cold on it. Is is there somewhere to shelter at the top? And by that time, you're too cold. What what's happened? Because it's such an unused, uh, rarely used climb. There's no infrastructure at the top. There's a few Napoleonic era barracks some way down on the descent to the town of Josie on the other side. Um, no, nothing except my guardian angels, a pair of a German couple in a Volkswagen camper van who saw us at the top. It was a miracle that there was anyone else up there at that time of day, just before, not just an hour before dark, essentially. Um, the roads were so icy on the way down that having got soaked through, um, 
as, as, as you might expect if you're lying in a stream, essentially. Uh, you couldn't descend down the other side at any speed because it was essentially ice. Um, and I developed what I later learned was the second stage of hypothermia. So my arms and all my limbs were going all over the place and I was starting to have crazy thoughts like, you know what, it would be much quicker if I just went straight down the mountain at this point, down the side <laughs> and forgot the road. Because the road's icy, so maybe it just goes straight down the side. Um, this is why some people with hypothermia in icy condition in snowy woods have been found naked outside their tent. Because uh, they're convinced that they're, you know... They're too hot. Burning up. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so th- this German couple came down and said, would you, would you, would you like a, a lift by any chance? And my two very British companions said, you know, no, take our, take our friend here. And I said, get the fuck in the van. Or, or what I t- intended, I intended to say that it came across as, blah, 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 because I was, I'd gone blue by that point. Uh, so they took my, uh, they took my clothes off. Um, why? Oh, just because of wet clothes, you can't have wet clothes on. Well, so you're in the you're you're basically what you're telling con- me is you ended up naked in the back of a German yeah, camper. Such such conditions um, promote intimacy. I mean, yeah, I, I would have I would have been thankful that they came along, but I'm not sure. Well, no, they were actually amazing people, and I was so out of it by the time we got to our hotel at the bottom that I didn't even have the presence of mind to take their names. But obviously, in the tiny chances that they're listening to this i genuinely believe both of you that you saved my life and i'm incredibly grateful that must have been quite awkward for you then i presume being naked in the back of a camper van well it seemed pretty natural at the time um i mean i guess however i guess the lesson is however sort of straightened your circumstances are you still feel relatively british about it and want to sort of put on a good show so i remember uh making many sort of comments about, look, so who are you? Where are you from? How's your family? Um, all the way down. And at the end, it just transpired. One of my friends said, we've just been blabbing, Stephen, for, for half an hour. We couldn't understand anything you were saying. And the sad thing is, I thought I was being incredibly debonair. That's pretty horrific. Uh, Graham, what's, what's the worst weather that you've ridden in? What's the worst experience you've had on a bike? Oh, I didn't end up naked in the back of a German yeah, very few, I still have my pants on. Just few people have. That's two different questions. What's the worst experience you've had on the bike and what's the worst weather? Yeah, worst, worst weather, easy one. Uh, you were there. You remember this? We, were, we rode from Great Ormond Street Hospital yeah. uh, all the way, the length of France, uh, over the Pyrenees to Barcelona. Sorry, chaps, not allowing this. This is the question is, what's the worst weather you've had, you've experienced, not the worst leg weather you've five, avoided? Leg five <laughs> of, that particular, of that particular tour was Saint-Amand-Montron to, uh, well, I, I can't remember. I think we were heading for Issoire that day, but we only got as far as Mont-Luçon. 6 a.m. we got up, so this is uh, beginning, middle of April, uh, 6 a.m. We, we it was two. So so just a little bit of context. We rode to Barcelona in in nine days for charity, and uh, it was the wrong time of year. I think uh, we learned from our mistakes. You didn't know that when you set out. No, we oh. didn't. So what? I think it was early April, wasn't it? It was a bit of a boy's own adventure, and it was a it was badly planned to say the least. But we, so we started in Saint Amand Montrond, and you got us up at 6 a.m. And you, every you're, morning, you're yeah. tired from the day before because we've ridden about 100 miles that day as well as the three days previously uh, you're, it's too early to get any sort of breakfast down so you're in no fit shape to start riding and then you go out and you're woefully underprepared for the, the biting cold of a uh, 
a French ski resort or near to a French ski resort morning because I think they do they ski in Iswar they ski in that national they park do. I, I, it's to be clear on this we uh, were that unprepared that we had lycra um, from the waist down but from the waist up we were in cotton t-shirts no, I, I can just remember it, it was pulling the football socks because that was the stage <laughs> that we were at pulling the football socks over my knees and just feeling like when I'd, I'd never never see the sun again I I just and just thinking we can't continue like this. But when the sun came up, it was actually all right. But it was that that early start where it was it was as cold as I've ever known it, and I, whatever however hard we rode, it was just it was miserable, and you just couldn't get warm. For the first time on the ride, I actually looked forward to the hills because going up the hills, you'd work up enough energy to to keep yourself vaguely warm. Whereas going down the other side was actually horrendous. Well, usually you'd, you'd try and work hard, wouldn't you? You yeah. just think, right, if I work harder, it's going to be fine. But there was nothing, nothing you could do that morning to warm up. It was so cold when it warmed up, the spokes on my bike immediately cracked. I was so happy. Because <laughs> <laughs> it meant we could stop and rest. Yeah. Um, so we had to go for some emergency repairs and we're helped out by a, by a kindly Frenchman. So it was you, Graham. Your cousin Chris, who uh, is six foot, and his, and his mate Tom, and his mate Tom. And Chris is has formerly played rugby union for Germany, yep. um, and he weighs quite a lot. So I imagine he was suffering as much as anyone. Well, I think we all were. I, I remember that morning. I was, I was, yeah, shaken up. The worst thing about that that was different to the experience I'm going to tell was um, my, the hand. My hands were so cold. I just couldn't... I, I was actually scared of going downhill because I didn't think I'd be able to operate Okay, so, so just clarify. I had hypothermia and felt like I was being stabbed with a thousand knives all over my body and David had cold hands. Interesting. What is an interesting postscript to this is that at, sitting at home in, the, in Britain and receiving updates via text, um, David reported the next day that they'd been in a bike shop and some French guy said, oh, no, it's going to be really snowy on those mountains obviously because it's april and you could have just found this out before you went and they said okay we'll just get the train then <laughs> so we'd gone 437 miles by, by that, that point. point yeah and that was day five yeah we were doing all right we were doing all right um to be fair they were doing really them. well for people who took football socks with them on a cycling trip. i think i think we've learned i think if we did it again now it would be a different journey i think that's fair to say the cold the coldest uh, the worst i've ever felt on a bike not the coldest was uh but certainly the worst was coming into cardiff at the end of another charity bike ride actually and it had just been raining all day we'd set off from uh just the, this side of the river seven in um and gone across the seven bridge and across to cardiff it rained the whole way, and it doesn't matter as 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 many of you know. It it doesn't matter what um what weather gear you're wearing, at some point the rain gets to you. It gets in everywhere, and I had all the overshoes. I had all the gear by this point. I wasn't wearing a cotton t shirt, but uh, this was a couple of years later, and we were coming into Cardiff, and we were just going down this road and I found myself physically shaking on the bike to the point that I couldn't control it anymore and it just got to the point where I just couldn't warm myself up anymore and I was thinking this is terrible because I'm riding with all these people from work so it was a work charity ride and there were 20 other people was there this were 20 the other ride people you with did me. with Joel Stransky the Absolutely. South so this is the point I'm coming to is, is actually Joel Stransky who scored all the points in the 1995 Rugby World Cup final yes. um, was, was on this he's, he's a hero of South African sport and I was there 
shaking on my bike, not wanting to look bad in front of everyone else. And I look to my right and Joel Stransky comes past me, literally shaking on his bike, going, I don't want this to stop. And at that point, I actually made me feel a lot better because I realised I wasn't the only person that was struggling. We were 10 minutes away from the end, but had it been 20, I would have I would stopped. I was And was, 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 was Stransky in good shape? Uh, he uh, is um, one of the fittest looking guys I've ever seen. They're quite heavy though, I imagine. No, he didn't Just look like an ounce of fat on him. He looked fantastic. Um, and I wish I had his body at his age. <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> David Notes. Uh, yes. Um. <laughs> and indeed, his sporting career. He's, uh, Joel Stransky uh, um, is uh, an incredibly good cyclist and spends a lot of time doing triathlons and cycle events now. Good guy. Excellent. Lovely bloke. Yeah. So, same time next week? Same time next week. Looking forward to it. Stephen Mabby, the professor. Goodbye from you. It is goodbye from me. Graham Wilkins. With with tailwinds. (laughs) Goodbye from you. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. See you next week. Bye.